Hey, I'm Alex. And I'm Gabriel. And this is episode 13 of Life on the Brink. And we're back to Lions. We recorded this episode soon after our last Lion interview in episode 2. And we forced ourselves to make sure there was at least 10 other episodes between <laughs> the first Lion episode and the second one. So after exactly 10, <laughs> here we are. But this one isn't quite the same thing. So our last Lion episode, we talked to Dr. Alexander Brokowski about the tree climbing lines of Uganda. This time, we're talking to someone who actually did a bit of research with Alex uh, a couple years back, but he also has background in another unique population of lions, Kenya's Savo population, famous for their maneless males. And when we released our first lion episode, we weren't figuring out the backstories to the names scientists give species, <laughs> which means we get to do that this time. Panthera Leo is the name, but what does it mean? Well, we've already covered Panthera when we did tigers, but uh -huh. we'll give another quick rundown on that. <laughs> so Panthera is basically comes from Greek, uh, ancient Greek, and pan means all and thera means beasts. So it means all beasts. But there's also another potential sort of uh, idea that Panthera comes from Sanskrit and it basically means like yellow or sand colored. Oh. Yeah. So I didn't find that one last time. <laughs> <laughs> Correcting yourself for <laughs> <laughs> and then Leo basically comes from the ancient Greek word Leon, which was meant lion. So, yeah, <laughs> we got all beasts and lion. All beasts <laughs> and lion. All right, Panthera Leo. Our guest spent his childhood helping out around the family safari company based in a Kenyan national park the size of Switzerland that's home to those mainless lions. Since then, he's researched how to conserve birds in the face of a changing climate. He's won awards for mapping research he was a part of that's been used by governments around the world. And because that wasn't enough, he's now started his own company, which is trying to save <laughs> endangered animals and stop the planet from warming up at the same time. So he's just a little ambitious. Yeah, a little. <laughs> this is episode. 13 of Life on the Brink featuring Savo's Mainless Lions and ecologist Dr. James Allen. Uh, well, might as well start off with, I guess, how did you get into conservation? Um. Well, easy question to start with. I basically got inspired <laughs> to get into conservation because I grew up in Kenya in East Africa and my family runs a small safari company. So I spent my childhood doing walking safaris through Savo National Park, which is the size of Switzerland. It's one of the biggest wilderness areas left in East Africa and it's full of lions. And That's so cool. the lions there are really interesting. They're, they're like a subspecies that the males are maneless. So it's very hard to tell them apart from the females. They don't have manes. And the behaviors are very different as well. Um, so the male lions do a lot of the hunting. They play with the cubs. And this is very different to your savanna lions in places like the Serengeti that have been really well studied. And so this, this intrigued me. I thought it was fascinating. So I dug into it. You know, why, why did they look different? What was going on? And I started to realize that most of what we know about lions is from savanna studies in the Mara and the Serengeti. And actually, we don't know much about lions in different ecosystems in scrubbier, semi-arid environments or you know, drier areas. And yeah, I just found them a really intriguing species. This wasn't 
scientific research yet. This was before I got into that, but it was more just personal interest mm-hmm. and reading up on it. There's a lot of theories about why, whether it's the, the scrubby environment means that the a mane just gets in the way. And also in grasslands, if you have a mane and a, mane, a male sits up, the females can see him from a kilometer kilometers away. So lots of theories as to why. I don't think anyone knows for sure. And also the lions in that area have an amazing history. In 1898, when the British built a railway from Mombasa to Nairobi, the lions actually stopped it in its tracks for nine months and ate 120 people in Savo. Two individual lions did this. And so we run our safaris right through that area, and we actually camp where this happened. So the whole history of lions in that area was inspiring. So that, that's what sort of got me hooked on looking at lions. That's crazy. <laughs> that's so cool, though. Yeah, pretty scary, and their ancestors are still out there. And, and you were just roaming around the, the, the same sort of area that were these <laughs> descendants of the man-eating lions are roaming. Yep, absolutely. We, we walk up to them on foot, um, game driving, so... Yeah, it's a really cool place, Savo National Park. So that that's what sort of tweaked my interest, really. And then as you get older, you start to appreciate the threats to the species. So you know, when you're young, it's just all their beauty and they're amazing. But suddenly you're like, wow, there's actually a highway on the edge of the park. There's farmers with cows, you know, encroaching. There's, you become more and more aware that these wilderness areas are not infinite and there's a boundary to them and that boundary is shrinking. And so... As I got to my university degree, I thought, well, this is something I want to do something about. And that's how I ended up getting into the science of conservation. And and when you got into the science of conservation, then did, did you have a focus of what you wanted to go into specifically? Or were you more focused on those broad interactions between people and the natural world? Very broad. So I did my honours year with Hugh Possingham at the University of Queensland and actually studied birds under climate change. Um, so completely separate. And then I went back to Kenya and it was, I just wanted to get, do something in the conservation sector. And I ended up connecting with a lion project in Kenya's Southern Rift Valley. And so I ended up working with them for about a year and managing one of their field camps. And it was great. So it's all communal land, Maasai traditional livelihoods. They, they graze cows. Um, and there's a really healthy population of lions living on their land. And so I was part of a team that went in there to study that interaction. So to try and understand how they coexist, um, when there's conflict, what is the cause of that? Is it on the human side? Is it from the wildlife side? Can we predict that? Can we stop that? Um, so that was my next step from university to the field. I've got to ask, was it, uh, was it, was it an easy decision going from birds to lions? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it was an, it was a no-brainer because I I wanted to get back to Kenya and do something closer to my roots and you know also you don't go into science sit at a desk for your whole life so to get out in the field was just incredible. It, it's hard work. I mean we were up at sort of four in the morning every day out there tracking lions. You know before it gets light you've got a you've got those sort of dusk and dawn and your key times. So long hours but really rewarding stuff. That's so cool. Well I guess. On that, what, what what what's an average day like out in the field doing that work? What was it what was it like? Oh, I mean, okay, let's go through it. So four AM you're up, quickly make some coffee, jump in the car, you're out there tracking lines. So you've got your old old school telemetry, um, they've got a collar on it, you're slowly beeping your way in towards them, off road, thick bush, you you're seeing great animals on the way. 
you're also recording the, recording the tracks. You might find some, you might see a new one. So trying to basically monitor the population, work out how many are there, where are they moving, what's their habitat use. By sort of 9 or 10 a.m., you're, it's getting too hot to be out there, so you're heading back to camp. You might have a bit of a breakfast, put your data in the computers, and then after that, either a few hours of computer work, or, or if you're unlucky, you're back out in the heat of the day doing your know, vegetation surveys or different, different types of science. And then about four in the afternoon, back out chasing lions again. And, uh, you know, after dark, you get back and you're absolutely exhausted. <laughs> so when you say you chase these lions, just how close do you actually get? You get pretty close. The, in this area, they're not used to cars or people. So you know, by the time you drive up to within 20, 30 meters of them, they get a bit edgy. Um, so you don't want to go closer than that. We did have one occasion, though, where we were tracking them. So we're driving along, we see some fresh tracks across the road. And we're like, oh, great, you know, let's see, is a male, female, we jump out of the car, not thinking that where there's tracks, there's probably lions. And in a bush, five meters to our right, it just suddenly explodes. And two of the biggest lions I've ever seen launch out of it. And I actually jumped from the ground onto the roof of the car in one motion. It's amazing what adrenaline could do. <laughs> but they, they were more scared than we were. And they went in the other direction. You know, their instinct is to hide, basically. And, and uh, once they hide, they can reassess. You know, do they want to hunt you? Do they want to stay hidden? Um, but usually that buys you enough time to then resolve the situation yourself. That's, oh, that's incredible. I couldn't imagine that. So then you, you were talking before about how this is one of the last big wilderness uh, regions in that area. You're also saying that the lions are very used to people. How, how are the lions going in this area? Because we heard enough for a second episode that there's yep. about 24,000 or so left. Yep. But, but what's the picture like uh, where you were working? So Kenya's is quite low. I think our lion population is probably 2,000 lions or less. The latest counts suggest maybe 1,700. In Savo National Park, the big wilderness area, I think there's between three and 400. And it's a pretty stable population of lions there. It's one of the sort of three biggest populations in Kenya. Um, where I was doing the research on the ground though is a different area. That's in Southern Kenya in the Rift Valley on communal land. And the population there is small. It's probably between 20 and 40 lions. Some are transitory. Hey, it's us. Uh, real quick, transitory. What's the definition? So transitory basically just means non-permanent. So populations that move around a lot and sort of come and go. And yeah, it's drifters, migrants, vagrants. Exactly. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Back to it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a healthy population. It's stable. And when you only have 1,700 lions, a population of 30 matters. And what made it so important as well was that it, it wasn't in a national park. It's communal land, which is, you know, our national parks in Kenya are big, but they're not big enough to sustain, you know, huge populations of wildlife. And so you need to work beyond their boundaries to keep broader landscapes open for them to move through and, and work in. So in, in, in these areas that you're working in, is it the same sort of uh, main threats that most lions face in that it's a lot of just retaliation killings that drives the numbers down? So that is one of them. Interestingly, though, on the community land, the, the community decided themselves to conserve these lions. It's a link to their culture and their, their traditional way of life, which is nomadic. So they move. So what they've done is half of their land is left aside for conservation. 
and in the dry season they'll graze in there it's like a grass bank and so this way they can still be nomadic half the year wet to dry season and move so they've got that link to their culture and traditionally maasai used to go out and kill a lion to become a warrior and they don't do that anymore but they now conserve them and so they maintain that link and so because of that they they feel they have complete ownership of these lions and if, if one of their community members kills a lion because it ate his cow or goat the whole community feels like well this guy just stole a lion from us that's not his lion to kill it's our communal lion why would you do that and that social pressure is more effective at saving lions than any conservation effort so you've actually that threat isn't a big deal in that area um what's different though about southern kenya is it's this big communal open grazing land but the biggest threat is subdivision of land and fencing so people are they want land rights over their block because if you have your 5 acres you can take a loan against that at a bank to get money to start a business and this is a western development model that the world bank has been pushing um it worked in the states it worked in other places it doesn't work in east africa where the basically the habitat isn't productive enough 5 acres has no value but 500 does as a communal area but sadly what we're seeing is subdivision and fencing happening across these big rangelands and so habitat and prey are just being depleted and you know the lions have, their mobility is limited um and so that's the biggest threat to their long-term survival so how far do lions on average move every every day um i mean that depends massively on prey the type of habitat you know ideally they wouldn't be moving more than 5 or 10 kilometers to hunt but as the prey gets sparser i mean the work i did with alex brichkovsky in uganda lions were moving up to 40 kilometers to hunt so it just depends on the environment they're in and that's a good signal of how healthy the population is too if they're moving less they're healthier than if they're moving more most of the movement though is young male lions dispersing so they as they get to a certain age they they basically head off and find new territories or challenge others and so what we we were putting collars on a lot of lions and what we would see is your young males would move quite big distances we actually had one lion move oh i think it was about 70 kilometers in 24 hours it was chased out of its territory by a new male moving in it obviously got the fright of its life of being defeated and it just took off in a straight line 70 kilometers in 24 hours. It was amazing. We didn't know we thought it'd been put in a truck and was being driven off. Oh my god. So they covered <laughs> the distances. That's incredible. I um just to just to move into I guess a bit 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 more of your other work. How did you go from focusing so heavily on 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 lions to moving into more broader conservation sort of research? Yeah, I I realized that there was only so long you could stay in the field. um doing that sort of stuff before your career gets stagnant so i went back to uq while people still remembered me and signed up to do a phd and it was just a case of what opportunities were in front of me and the oscar venter was doing an amazing piece of work at the time mapping the human footprint across earth and they needed young people to help them realize the vision of that so mapping wilderness looking at um the human footprint in protected areas Hello, we're back again. Uh, we've heard human footprints a couple times now, Alex. Do you want to give us the rundown? Sure thing. So, the human footprint basically measures energy quantities, resources, and products consumed by humans during their lifetime. 
And so it's basically for an individual, what you consume in your life. <laughs> right. And I'm assuming in this context, probably specifically like the carbon from that. Yeah. So in this context, it'd be like any kind of carbon released through the food that you consume, the car that you drive, pretty much anything that releases carbon dioxide, that's going to be like a measurement of your, how much you release in your life. <laughs> nice. And then protected areas was also mentioned there. We've done this already, the protected areas jump in. But uh, just to recap, protected areas are like national parks, uh, marine parks, uh, state forests, anything privately conserved land, all of it just lumped together into one big category is protected areas. So if you hear that, just sort of think national parks plus all the similar things. Yeah, exactly. And we'll get back into it. <laughs> and I just thought it'd be great to do something different to what I had done, you know, add another string to my bow. And so that's how I ended up getting into that and, and doing my PhD on wilderness conservation. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've had some pretty big impact from this work and, and won some awards for it. And, and, and what, what would you say, looking back on that, are the biggest impacts you had from that very different broad scale work you did and are still doing, I guess? Yeah, good question. I think when you do the broad scale work, you're more trying to influence a policy. So you've got to come up with a theory of what you want to change. And so the World Heritage work we did, which won the award, we basically wanted to look at whether they were being damaged by people or not, because these are the most important protected areas in the world. A, probably a more interesting one was our work on protected areas, where we showed that one third of protected land is pretty much built on farmed by people. And so there you're getting at a, your governments are reporting this stuff as their commitment to their, their UN targets, their CBD targets, when in reality, it's, it's providing no benefit to conservation. So we were shining a light on that problem and then trying to get the policies and those targets to be met in a, a better way that would actually lead to conservation outcomes. So it's, uh, I guess, similar to how Australia sort of met those goals by just taking this massive patch of the middle of Australia that nobody really uses and just being like, yeah, we've protected this massive amount of land. Yeah, exactly. Like Governments are always looking for the easy way to do all this, aren't they? So you've got to hold them to account and satellites don't lie, right? When you use remote sense data, there's, it's not political, it's simply what's happening. So no, I think that that work has had an impact and looking at the discussions for the post 2020 strategic plan for biodiversity, there's talk of targets in there for, for wilderness, for ecological integrity. There's been a lot of work in that space in the last few years, but I, I do think our work, you know, myself and others in the lab has contributed to that, to moving the, the needle on that which is really encouraging. Yeah. I mean, so you've gone on the ground line conservation, really, really broad scale conservation action informing world governments effectively. Um, what are you up to these days? Yeah. So I've, I've just left academia, um, which is quite a nice change actually. And I've started up a, a carbon offsetting company. You know, the, my biggest motivation for getting into it was when I bought a plane ticket, I went to, I looked at the button, you know, click to offset your flight and just thought, where is my money going? Is it having any impact at all? Um, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I did not trust that it was going to do anything. And so I thought, well, why don't I create a product that I would actually put my money behind? And so the aim of it is to use carbon credits and the revenue that they generate to conserve wildlife and wildlife habitat. And basically taking the science of that and actually putting it into action. And surprisingly, it's a niche that not many people have been doing. And so 
the way the way it works mm. is we're a broker. We're essentially a platform or a middleman that finds wildlife carbon credits across the planet and you know purchases them, forms a nice portfolio, and then sells that on to individual subscribers who want to offset their footprints or to businesses that want to offset their footprints. Um, I did a lot of work during my postdoc on trying to map these areas out. And so we connect with the projects ourselves and I grill them on the science because carbon is still a bit of a cowboy field and you really want to make sure that it's being done transparently and rigorously. And I think there's a lot of public distrust in carbon offsetting. Yeah, especially with conservation and climate change. It is such a big thing that we really need everybody to get on board with. And when there are these other things that are set up that aren't transparent, the money doesn't go anywhere. It just it increases that distrust that a lot of people have and prevents a lot of people from getting on board, which is so unfortunate. Absolutely. And you know, when people are opaque in what their margin is when selling a carbon credit, things like that, you don't know how much money is going into big businesses' pockets mm-hmm. versus back to communities, back to projects. Hey, and we're just cutting in because we're going to give a definition of carbon credits. <laughs> yeah, real quick. Carbon credits, uh, well, according to the Wikipedia entry, it's one ton of carbon dioxide or the equivalent amount of a different greenhouse gas. Basically, a company or an individual or anyone or anything that's causing CO2 emissions can pay someone else who's stopping CO2 from being emitted by planting trees, by protecting areas and stopping them being cleared, by doing anything like that. You create carbon credits by doing that uh, and then you can sell them. So it's a way of pushing the problem to someone else to fix uh, (laughs) if you're causing emissions. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, cool. All right, get back into it. (laughs) Um, Actually, a cool bit of work I'm doing on the carbon stuff is I, I spoke to a group called the Rights and Resources Initiative about developing a standard of best practice for carbon projects engaging with local communities as well, which is all about how do we support their land rights, their autonomy in decision-making, and make sure that the benefits of the carbon on their land are shared equitably with them. Um, Because, yeah, we just don't want big business capturing all the benefits of this and the people on the ground not getting anything. And right now we're working with projects in Africa So back to Lions, we're working with a team called Lion Landscapes and Biocarbon Partners in Zambia, who have a huge forest protection program. It's all run with carbon credit revenue, and that's uh, saving really important lion habitat, connecting a number of big national parks, South Luangwa, creating one of the longest wildlife corridors in Africa. So yeah, we're using carbon as a, a way of funding that sort of, you know, large scale conservation. And at a very base level, the idea behind a lot of carbon offsetting seems to be planting trees to offset the carbon that we use. And it at a and and at base level, then for Kubi, it seems like it's planting trees in an area where they can also, you know, have a lion living within them as habitat. Is that is that basically the idea of of it of of using the trees for the carbon as well as the habitat? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, most carbon projects are restoration and plant a tree. But if you're just planting monocultures and things, then you're really not getting any biodiversity benefits. So we want to see natural habitat restoration in the right places. Um, it's not just restoration. It's also um, avoided deforestation. The way that works is you can look at an area and work out what the baseline rate is. You know, Is it 10% chopped down each year type thing? 
And if you go in and you stop that, you're essentially avoiding that loss. And that is also a carbon credit. Um, so yeah, either you're restoring habitat or you're avoiding the loss of important wildlife habitat. And you've got communities benefiting as well. So yeah, you get these added benefits. Is climate change itself going to have an impact or much of an impact on lions on the ground? It's an interesting question. I don't think the climate changing itself will, but I think how people respond to the climate change and its impacts could be quite detrimental. And an example of that is in Kenya, we're going into drought right now in many parts of the country. And so you're seeing a lot of illegal grazing of cattle into national parks, including in Savo, where these mainless male lions are. And so that is putting a lot of pressure on them. It's just compressing them further into the center of the reserves. It's reducing their habitat. There's more conflict events, more retaliatory killing. You know, when you, when you take 7,000 cows into a Savannah National Park, that pretty much destroys the ecosystem. It's, yeah, you can, you can do sustainable grazing with a smaller number. That's possible to have coexistence, but 7,000 invading en masse just destroys, and it can take decades for it to recover from that. So it's that sort of human response that's the real issue when it comes to climate change and wildlife in Africa. Um, have you So at the moment, is it currently just looking at sort of benefits towards lions, or are you also looking at other, other species as well? No, so we've got one lion project, but we're also working with a, a group called Carbon Tanzania who do phenomenal work protecting forests in Western Tanzania for chimpanzees in a place called the Entakata Mountains. And it's all communal land. Communities have been using those forests to live their traditional lifestyles for millennia. And basically their lifestyle can be secured and the habitat for wildlife can be secured by using carbon, carbon credits and the revenue generated by them. Um, another example is elephants in Kenya. So you've got a lot of national parks, but the areas between them that connect them are often not well conserved. And so in southern Kenya, there are some great carbon offsetting projects that are protecting habitat on community land to keep big wildlife corridors open where elephants can migrate between national parks. So working with them as well. We're actually in discussions right now with um, a number of Australian projects to come up with a portfolio over there. So I don't, it's not far enough advanced for me to really talk about now, but how cool would the Tasmanian devil carbon be or something oh. like that? So we'll see where that goes. Just to go back a little bit, how, how did, uh, was it tough making the decision to, to step away from being out in the field and all this field work to coming back to more of a broad scale and, and sitting more behind the computer again? Um, no, it wasn't because I realized to actually move forward in my career, I needed to do a PhD, get that under my belt. And I was really fortunate that when I started my PhD with James Watson, he was the head of science at the Wildlife Conservation Society. And so there were a lot of opportunities to actually get into the field and work on these WCS projects. So I did my desk-based research, but I also got to go over to Mozambique and help develop a management plan for Nyasa National Reserve, which is one of the biggest wilderness areas in Africa. It's, it's huge. Um, so I managed to combine the best of both worlds for a little bit. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, one of the questions we, we love to ask people when they come on is where they're best day looking back has come from do you do you have one that stands out as a sort of a day that you look back on as there's a highlight oh that's a tough question <laughs> um 
Give me one second to think. There's there's probably a few that fit in there. No worries. So, geez, that is a tough one. Um, all right. So I, I reckon the best days are not, they're not necessarily the big one-off moments where you have a paper come out or you win an award or none. It's none of those sort of things. Those are great, but it's actually just the satisfaction of being in the field, knowing you've done meaningful work that day. So there were days when I was working in Southern Kenya where you'd respond to a wildlife conflict event in the morning. Um, you'd see the passion the pe and the anger and the heartbreak of the people who'd lost livestock. You'd deal with that. You'd then be out doing your biological research, you know, you're counting lions, doing habitat surveys. And then by the end of the day, you're completely exhausted. You're having a beer in the evening and you just feel so rewarded. And there's too many days like that to say there's any one that stands out. But those are the days I wouldn't trade for anything. Like they're the reason you get into this field, I think. Cool. Um, and just to go on, on, the, on, the, on the flip side, because we usually ask this as well. Have you had a worse day or is there like days that are just shocking to and it's just it's tough to work in conservation oh yeah for sure for sure less so in the field more in the research and the academic side so i think you know when you when you're doing research in a phd you're banging your head against a problem that no one else has ever solved before and sometimes you'll work for two weeks on something or three weeks and then you realize there's a mistake in your code or something's gone wrong and you're actually no further ahead than you were weeks ago you've actually stepped backwards and it's infuriating it's the scientific process it's the reality of the work we do but those are the days where you question your life choices a tough day in the field is great because it's part of the fun your car breaks down it's a disaster and it's, you're, you're just putting out fires but that's why you do it have you had any uh i guess especially when you're working with the lions was there any moments um, for, for example, Alex, ha, ha, in his documentary, there's a moment where they realize that one of the lions has been snared. Have you had any sort of heartbreaking moments where you've cut, you came across any of the, the pack or the prides that you were following that were injured? Yeah, I wasn't as personally connected to the lions as, as Alex because he was up so close and personal filming them in the trees and getting to know the individual characters. But anytime you lose a lion that you know, it's, it's devastating. And so... When these young male lions would take off and disperse, you'd, you'd just be so nervous. You're waiting to see, are they going to get across community lands or, you know, communities that are less in favor of conservation? What will happen? And more often than not, they move 50, 70 kilometers beyond their, you know, safe areas. And then they're killed, they're poisoned, there something happens. And very few of them actually make it, make it through. And so you spend that time looking at the updates of their GPS collar on your computer. You're, you're following them. You're trying to get in to actually see them on the ground as well. But you've just got a sinking feeling in your stomach because you know that could be bad. And more often than not, it is, sadly. And so, yeah, that's why keeping rangelands open and unfenced is, is the biggest thing so these animals can keep getting through. Mm. Well, I think we might try and jump into some audience questions now. So I'll yep. start off with um, Cass, who had uh, a. I'm going to uh, forewarn. There's a, a bit of a, a tough question. Um, okay. she, she asked, um, "Do you think carbon credits are a real solution, or more greenwashing over actual problems occurring with with land clearing around the world?" I think I think they're both at the same time at the moment. So 
in terms of being effective, yes, I think they are having a real, making a real difference. Certainly the projects we're supporting in Africa, the conservation difference is bigger than the climate impact that they're having. So the climate impact of carbon credits, I don't think at the moment, especially from the wildlife type ones and habitat is that big yet. It's not at the scale to really solve the problem. But you know, when, you, when you're conserving 400 hectares, you know, several thousand kilometers, big areas through carbon, um, that is prime habitat. And so that impact on the ground is massive. So in terms of their ability to fight climate change, no, I think we need to think bigger. It's more about stopping the fossil fuel industry and these sort of things. Um, yes, I think a lot of companies are using it as greenwashing. And so increasing the transparency there is really important. A lot of big companies, I mean, in Australia, if you got in trouble recently, are buying very cheap carbon credits in India that come from fairly questionable sources of whether they're having an impact or not. And so we need to do away with that and, and start making sure that there's trust. When someone purchases a carbon credit, it does equal a ton of carbon removed from the atmosphere for good. Um, we had a, a, a couple of questions from, from Dev and, and she, she wanted to know um, what, what are the main reasons that these trees are being cut down? Well, purely agricultural expansion, really. So large-scale agricultural projects, um, also communities just expanding slash and burn subsistence agriculture. Populations are growing rapidly in Africa um, and people just are running out of space. So they're extending further and further into wild areas. So yeah, it's habitat conversion for human uses is the biggest threat. Um, the charcoal trade is big, so a lot of trees are chopped down here, and the charcoal sold through Somalia, the Middle East. Um, it, it can end up being connected to terrorism, to illegal wildlife trade. It's quite big business. Trees are valuable, and so that's why they're going in Africa. Um, but it's a global problem, right? And Australia is some of the highest land clearing rates in in the world, and it's a for a totally different reasons. You know, poor governance among many. So, yeah. Cool. Hey, jumping in for uh, the last time here in this episode. Uh, Alex, do you remember when we recorded this episode? Uh, it was kind of before we started doing the official question time with your mum. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I referred to your mum by the wrong name a couple of times when before yes, you corrected me on it. <laughs> I did. Because, yeah, I butchered it again. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to hold you still partially responsible for not correcting me on it. Yeah, that's kind of my bad. <laughs> Sorry, mum. <laughs> so this is the next edition uh, of Question Time with Subi, with your mum, and fingers crossed, <laughs> cross everything, the last occurrence of Question Time with Susan. <laughs> oh, goodness. I still will never forget. It's always Suzanne, never Susan, Alexander. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, God. Um, our last two audience questions uh, are uh, from Susan, who asked about lion cubs. Um, so we'll finish on a cuter note. Um, but she, she wants to know, when lions have uh, litters, how many cubs are in those litters? And then how long do those cubs stick around uh, before they go their own way? Um, let's see. God, I actually... 
this is terrible, but I actually don't even know. It's, <laughs> it's, okay. it's funny when you're a spatial ecologist, you're looking more at landscapes and threats and movement and territory use rather than actually the, the animal natural history side of it. But I mean, lions will have a handful of cubs, you know, two to five, and not all of them will survive. And by the time they're, they're getting sort of two to three years old, they're moving away or they, they often stay within the pride. Some of them, the males will disperse. By the time they're six years old, they're at prime, prime adult, you know, reproducing age. Cool. All righty. Well, uh, on that note, we might just do um, our wrap-up questions. So if people want to, I guess, help out, get involved or learn more about the work that you do, um, do you have any, any sort of organizations and I guess your own that you yeah. want to <laughs> give a shout out for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give it a shout out. Jump, jump on our website, www.kubicarbon.com. Um, reach out to me directly. In terms of other organizations, there are so many great local conservation groups out here. It's hard to, hard to name them. I think the Southern Rift Valley Association of Landowners is probably one of the most forward-thinking groups I've ever met in the way they do conservation because it is all local community-based grassroots upwards and they're essentially writing the textbook on how community conservation should work i'd also say people looking to work in places like africa i suggest looking at the smaller local ngo groups um, rather than the big ngos there's amazing local capacity now in the last decade that's really changed and they haven't it's interesting, they've got the capacity to do conservation better than anyone else. But they haven't formed the connections yet to the big Western donors and things like that. And so that will be the next decade's change. But certainly the local conservation power in Africa is growing rapidly and that's really exciting. So I think there's gonna be big positive changes in conservation as a result of that. Cool. And uh, and, and just, just finally, um, do you have, uh, so in, in a couple of sentences or so, uh, a take-home message just about lion conservation or, or just conservation in general that, that you, you'd like people to hear? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough field because you're always dealing with losses, but don't get downhearted. Just keep pushing. It's going to get better from here and it's growing. You know, the, the environmental issues are becoming real. You look at the climate change right now. I mean, Europe's had its hottest temperatures ever. The U.S. is either on fire or under flood. So I think the fact that the West is being hit, we're going to see some changes um, soon. Now's the time. And so I think as environmentalists, we should all be ready for that and ready to capitalize on, the mo on that mood change in the general public. Um, so I think it's a really exciting time to be in conservation. Um, for, for people who maybe are experiencing that mood change, you know, and, and hear something like this about line conservation. Yep. What's the best thing for someone to do for sitting in a completely different world, um, you know, maybe locked down at the moment yep. um, and they want to help lion conservation on the ground in Kenya, say, what, yep. what is the best thing that someone can do in that, in that instance? I mean, money is the biggest one, right? Funding is the Achilles heel of conservation in Africa. The trick is making sure it goes to the right places where it's going to have an impact. So, through probably through personal contacts, find really good projects and start helping support them. It can be in-kind support, but usually just no strings attached funding is the most effective for you know thing you can do for them. Um, 
if people are interested in Kenya, reach out to me. I'm happy to to chat with anyone about this stuff. I love it. So yeah, but yeah, and offset your individual footprints and things. Make sure you're not part of the problem. Awesome. Well, that's uh, I was going to say. I think that's that's pretty much all of our questions. Unless you got, mm-hmm. got any more, Gabe? No, good. Sweet. Well, I might might shut off the recording, but thanks, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Episode 13 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turbul Yagura and Garingai people. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks again to James for that awesome line lecture. And we're sorry to cut you off at the end. We're a little too keen with the stop recording button. <laughs> James is on Twitter at James Ecology and... Yep, we're both extremely jealous of that Twitter handle. <laughs> I want Gabriel Ecology so bad. <laughs> oh, Give Life on the Brink a rating, review, follow, or whatever it is you can do on your podcast app of choice. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at a Life on the Brink, and we'll be posting some more requests for questions on that Instagram over the next few weeks. If you've just found us, the first 12 episodes of Life on the Brink are already out wherever you're hearing this. Or you can find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Angus Bazina for running the website. Thanks to Kyle and Wally for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect.